This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me for another episode on the show. Today we're crossing the Indian Ocean yet again for I think about the third time to the KwaZulu-Natal region, province of South Africa, to talk to long-range hunter, long-range shooter and just all-round top bloke, Nico Harris, uh, someone I've been wanting to get on the show for quite some time. So just bear with us, guys, in regards to the connection. Uh, Sometimes, especially when I call overseas, there does seem to be a little bit of a delay. So we'll try our best to get that done. Hopefully, Nico's got uh, some good coverage. So that's going to be fantastic. We're going to talk about guns. We're going to talk about scopes. We're going to talk about reloading. We're going to talk about South African hunting and, and the amount of game you can hunt in South Africa. Things like warthogs, baboons, monkeys, zebra, springbok. Wildebeest, all types of deer, um, things like ducks, uh, doves, pigeons. There's so many things, and that's not even including the big game you can actually hunt over there. Um, what a fantastic heritage South Africa has and culture uh, of hunting and shooting activities, which is absolutely fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to getting Nico on the show. He's a farmer from South Africa as well, and I love just getting people from different cultures and different countries onto the show. And I get a lot of emails, people saying they really enjoy that too and you know what so do i i've said on previous shows i really do enjoy that so that's going to be fantastic uh coming up soon as well i'm thinking about putting together i'm just putting it together now uh a podcast on sort of how to get started in public land hunting now this is obviously just going to be in general, uh, just going to concentrate on things like tips and tricks and techniques, you know, firearms that you're going to need, optics, uh, and basic things to get you started so that if someone actually listens to the show, it's going to give them a good grounding uh, on how to get started in public land hunting. I'm going to get a lot of people on the show as well for maybe three to eight minute little segments and just give their, say, top two or three tips on what they learned from public land hunting. So it's going to be a different perspective from a lot of different people. So I'm not sure how I'm going to structure it just yet, but I'm definitely going to be doing it. Um, Things from firearms, optics, clothing, uh, and just general tips and tricks. I think that'll be helpful to to people in starting their uh, uh, public land hunting experience, just like I did many years ago and just like many people listening to this show. Uh, Of course, you can find the podcast on all the uh, different places, such as the website. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on the Podbean app. Uh, people have been also letting me know they're really enjoying having it on YouTube because it's easy to, easy to access there as well. So you can also check us out on YouTube at Australian Hunting Podcast and also my YouTube channel, which I've been uploading some rabbit hunting footage and sort of a little documentary style series that I've got going on the rabbits. Uh, I've done two series so far, part one and part two for both of them. Um, so you can check them out as well. And I'm going to go away on the, I think it's the 16th of October. Uh, for about four days, 17th of October at four days. So going to do another series on the rabbit hunting as well. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. Can't wait. Farmers are psyched and stoked that we've been getting rid of a fair few rabbits off the property, um, which, you know, suits us because I get the video footage and also suits him as well because less chance of the stock putting their, you know, their feet <laughs> into you know areas and breaking their legs and him having to put them down so that's fantastic as well if you go on itunes i'd love if you left me a 
comment and rate five stars. Obviously, that'd be fantastic. I really, really, really appreciate that. And if you want to leave any emails or you want any information, um, just email me, AustralianHuntingPodcast at gmail.com. Any questions, um, writing back to the show, just anything. I'd love to hear from you. Like, guys, if you're listening to the show and I don't get back to you, I get so many emails. Um, some of them I need to respond to. Some are better left for the show because um, that's how I like to deal with them. Um, so, yeah, if you write to me and I get back to you, don't feel you will hear the question on the show. So don't, don't freak out about that. Of course, as usual, can't go into the show without thanking all my Patreon supporters because I've said this before, I've told them many, many times, you know, if it wasn't for their support, I really probably would have quit a couple of years ago, to be brutally honest, and just concentrated on my own hunting and shooting activities. But the fact they support me, they want to keep it going, and, you know, I'm happy to keep doing that, and um, it's a real privilege to um, work with people that support me and love the show. And if you can't support the show on Patreon, that's fine. You know, just share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it on social media, chuck it on your Twitter feed or your Instagram story or whatever it may be. That goes a long way in being able to support me, not just about any monetary value. So I wanted to thank everyone that supported me on that. You guys know who you are and, you know, you've kept me going. Some guys that have supported me on Patreon for years and, you know, I, I just, I don't know how to repay that. I really don't. And um, all I hope is that you guys are getting something out of this. You're enjoying the content and, Either you're learning something new or like in the show we're going to do today, we're going to hear from someone that doesn't live in Australia, that lives in a completely different country with a different set of rules uh, and a different set of hunting culture. And I'm looking forward to it. So I think what I should do is get into the show. Uh, It's going to be a, a very, very good one. Before I do, I just want to say again, leave us a voicemail. Uh, jump on the website australianhuntingpodcast.com.au in that right hand side bar you'll see that leave voicemail so if you want to play something on the show and uh, what I might do is actually put out there is let anything you want to discuss I'm actually going to play it on the show so when I do this public land hunting one as well if you want to send in your tips and tricks please leave us a voicemail as well I'm not sure if this one will go live before that one I think it will it'll probably be episode 231 or 232 and I'll do the the public land one hunting after that so if you've got any tips or tricks for people that will, you know any budding hunters that want to get into the sport let us know and uh, i'll happy to play it as well and uh, i'll play it on the show and as part of the public land hunting series on how to get into it so anyway enough ranting and raving from me i think we should get into the show with nico harris nico welcome to the australian hunting podcast mate pleasure thank you for accepting my invite to come on the show man i really really appreciate that how's it jason good to be speaking man glad oh, oh, appreciate the invite yeah no worries. I remember, I think I told Matt when I interviewed Matt, uh, probably not sure how long ago I interviewed Matt, maybe eight months ago, a year ago. I said I, I lived uh, probably when I was 20, I'm now 39, when I was 21, maybe 22, so almost 20 years ago, I lived with about six South Africans on a, a ski field in, in the USA when we're working in Maine up on the far north uh, eastern tip of the USA. And I lived with them for about five and a half months and they were trying to teach me some Afrikaans, but to this day, I still don't remember any words. The only one I do know is Lekka. Lekka. That's the only one I know. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, hope, I hope you follow. There'll be a few of them. Lekka, yeah, Bucky, those type of things. Eh? <laughs> yeah, very good. Mate, tell us about yourself, I guess. A bit of a history. I mean, where you grew up. Or, you know, did you grow up in South Africa? Just give us a bit of a history about who is Nico Harris. Yeah, man, Jason. I live in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, province in South Africa. I've lived uh, uh, in a small town called Malmuth. The nearest big town probably being Durban, about two hours away. Um, I've pretty much lived here all my life. Grew, uh, grew up here from uh, from early days. Yeah, so lived here all my life. Um, 
Yeah, and so Natal boy, uh, born and bred. Yeah. What's it like living in? How many people in? You said Melmoth. How many people live in that town? It's a small town. I think probably, um, including the rural community, we're probably not more than ten thousand people in town. Probably about two thousand or so. So not not extreme, extremely rural, but still a, a small town. Um, but uh, awesome. I love love growing up. Uh, on the farm in small town area, you know, growing up shooting pellet guns and, and that type of thing. So um, I could never live in the city, that's for sure. And um, if I go to the city for two or three days, I'll start <laughs> getting claustrophobic. So that won't work out. <laughs> what did you, what do you normally do too? Do you like, um, how did you get into actually hunting and shooting? And, and what was the catalyst? Was it your family? Was it your mum and dad? Was it dad? Was it brothers? Or how did you get into shooting? Well, I come from a family of uh, traditional hunters. So um, my grandparents uh, passed away before, when I was very young and some of them before I was even born, but they, they were keen hunters. I, I recall stories that, of my dad and them telling of uh, the grandparents going out hunting for months at a time, hunting hippos and, and stuff like that. And then um, my dad's been a very keen hunter his whole life. So I pretty much grew up with it started shooting a springer pellet gun probably from the age of about four. I remember I could barely get it loaded and I was shooting it already, a, a little Jakarta model 20 or 22, tiny little pellet gun. And then from the age of about seven, I started um, started hunting. Um, so and my dad didn't mess around. I shot with a 22 long rifle a bit, but I, I remember from the age of about seven, I started shooting a seven by 57. And uh, yeah, right. before I was eight, I'd hunted, hunted my first animal already, yeah. Yeah, right. What do you, and what do you do living in um, South Africa, you know, sort of a farming territory? What, like that you said you live in a small town, so what people generally do in a small town, is it a, a farming-type town or? Yes, yeah, our, our, farm is a, is a, our town is a farming community, and uh, most of the farmers farming sugarcane and timber, timber being um, uh, wattle. Uh, black wattle and uh, eucalyptus trees from from your, your side of the world. We farm <laughs> those to produce paper, and then obviously sugarcane to produce sugar. Yeah, yeah, right. Seems like a, a very productive. Is it is it good um, good land there for farming activities? Yes, we've, we're in a good rainfall area. We get about thousand two hundred millimeters of rain uh, per annum. So and, and good soils, but uh, challenging terrain. Like you've seen on some of the pictures I've seen here over the last few days, very mountainous, hilly area. So that's quite a challenge. And then also a little bit colder, not I wouldn't say cold, but colder than most sugarcane areas. So we don't need to irrigate because of the high rainfall, but we do have a little bit longer growing period, probably 18 to 20 months, where coastal regions would probably be about 12 months for their sugarcane. So but still producing very good sugarcane, producing very good timber. Yeah. Do you rely just on rainfall or do you have, is there irrigation over there or just relying on rainfall? Uh, the area where I'm in, where I live, there's no, irrig no irrigation needed. So everything just, it's reliant on rainfall. Um, and our, we, the only, it's only basically in our winter months that the rainfall uh, is a lot lower. I wouldn't say nothing. We do get, Rain here and there over the winter, but pretty much summer rainfall area. But uh, we've never had the need to to really irrigate anywhere or, or, or anywhere in our area. Yeah. 
It's it's amazing, isn't it? Because I remember I watched a couple of Matt's videos, especially over where he was hunting Vitmos Cliff, if I've got that correct. But uh, we had a big drought. It's probably about eight nine months ago. Here we were coming out of a significant drought as well. Uh, here in Australia, a lot of our farmers were not getting water and. It just seems to be a worldwide thing. Droughts just happening left, right and centre in different countries and making farming activities very difficult. We are, for sure. I mean, where Matt is up in the Eastern Cape is a lot drier area than uh, than where I'm in, in, in KZN. But yeah, I was chatting to my to my dad a while ago and I said to him, it, it's been like we've been in a, like a, not very drought in the sense that you guys have it where there's no grass or anything we have what they call green droughts so we've got a lower rainfall than normal but it's still raining and it still looks if you're inexperienced in the area you'd think it's everything's fine but probably for a good couple of years now and it's been low uh, very low rainfall period and actually for the last pretty much week we've just had non-stop light drizzle of rain and the last time I remember seeing something like that was as a child, you know, 25 plus years ago. Um, so, yeah, hopefully it's turning. Hopefully we're in for a few years of quite a quite wet seasons, which would be very welcome. Yeah, absolutely. When you, were, when you were growing up and, I mean, I guess your dad was taking you out hunting, what were sort of some of your, your fond memories? What sort of animals were you hunting when you were a bit of a youngster? I remember as a child we would uh, – with the with the wattle plantings that we do, we plant seedlings, and obviously the seedlings are, are much softer than than the natural the natural grown stuff. So um, we'd go out late afternoons uh, uh, with my dad, myself. I've got two younger brothers as well, and we'd go out uh, walking and stalking these dikers because they'd go into these wattle trees and bite off all the crowns, and they'd end up growing into bushes and not into trees. So that's probably the. <laughs> The thing I remember the clearest is going out as youngsters, always nagging uh, my dad to go out looking for these pesky dikers eating the wattle trees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, what, what's it like over there? I mean, in regard, when was you? How old were you when you? Uh, I know a lot of countries have got a different, lot of different gun laws and stuff. But how were you when old were you when you first picked up your your first firearm, or, or did Dad buy you your first firearm? Or so. I start, like I said, I started hunting with dad's firearms when I was about seven years old. Started shooting. Back then, my dad had a seven by fifty-seven and and the two-two LR. So that's what we were were shooting. And then later on, he, my dad bought a thirty-six um, in Sauer Model ninety. And um, I think I was about sixteen at the time. And he uh, he that the rifle never never really grew on him. And he just kept on shooting his 7x57, and I started shooting the 306. So when I turned 21, he gave me the 306. So that was the first rifle that then I officially licensed in my name. So And probably for about five years, it's all I shot with was the 306. Um, basically from crows and, and, and monkeys or whatever up to massive kudu bulls, everything hunted with a 306. And I remember there's def- definitely a clear advantage in only shooting one rifle like that. You get so confident with it. You just know exactly what it's doing. <laughs> These days, having a few different rifles definitely makes the think work a, a little bit more than, than back then. 
Yeah, and, and what, what's it like in your local area? Is there, you know, a, a rich culture of sort of hunting or, or shooting activities or gun ranges or what's, where do you normally have to go? Obviously, you've got land, so you can probably sight in and shoot, you know, on your own property. But do you have any, you know, local clubs and there's a good rich culture of hunting and, and, and club shooting in, in your local area? Yeah, so our area used to, used to have uh, plenty of farmers. And with economy of scale, farmers having to grow to keep up to costs that continuously going up, profit margins coming down, the farmers have really become quite a lot less, you know. And um, lucky for, luckily for me, I've, I'm from quite a large family. My dad and them were seven brothers, and most of us still stay in and around town here, and we all hunt. <laughs> that already makes up quite a nice big group of hunters. And we've, uh, I'm also a member of the, the uh, South African Hunters Association, and I'm on the committee. So what I've what we've done is we've made available some of our land, and I've actually um, put up a shooting range. So I've got a shooting range that the one range goes from zero to out to 800 meters or 900 yards. Wow! And yep. then if you turn 90 degrees to your left, it starts off at a thousand yards, and then it goes right out to a thousand eight hundred or whatever to just over a mile. Um, wow. So I'm spoiled to have to have that at my disposal. <laughs> and I also. I also host the, um, we call it the Natal Gong Series. It's basically a gong series based on um, on long-range hunting. Um, it's a long story, but I've got a lot of friends up from the Free State of South Africa, which is really flat. And we're all on a WhatsApp group together where we chat and speak about hunting and shots and reloading, you know, all that type of thing. And I would shoot the animal at 500 meters and shoot it in the shoulder. And they'd say to me, well, you know, why don't you just shoot it in the head? It's only 500 meters away. And I could see there's, at first I thought, well, these guys must have incredible skills in taking shots like that. <laughs> yeah. And um, after a while, I, I realized it's the terrain. They've got flat terrain. The wind you measure where you are and the wind where the animal is standing is basically exactly the same. In the mountainous area where, where I stay, 500 meters is a long way away. And if you're shooting, we have a lot of like, uh, shooting across valleys from one side of the valley to the other side of the valley or shooting up valleys, down valleys. And often you measure the wind left to right, whatever the, the, the speed is, but left to right where you are and you shoot at the target and it ends up, uh, you've adjusted in completely the, the wrong direction. The wind's blowing in the opposite direction on the other side. But because you're crossing the valley, there's no vegetation, there's no mirage, there's nothing out there to show you that Halfway through the valley, there's a, a wind stream coming up and it's, it's changed direction completely. So we started this gong shoot and I've basically, it's a fully silenced gong shoot, the only one I, I know of in the country. The whole series, the silences are compulsory. And then basically five ranges with uh, three gongs per range. And then you set up in a field position. So it's not built up positions like platforms or anything, but it will be a road or like a nice flat area the type of position you'd find if you if you were doing long-range hunting. And then we have one gong at between four and 600, one gong between six and 800, and one gong between 800 and 1,000. And um, it's really opened up people's eyes in regards to how difficult it can be to shoot across these valleys and to figure out the winds and, and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that was quite interesting. Guys come and shoot that, and they basically – we have minimal prizes at our shoots and guys shoot for bagging rights. It's become quite a thing to be able to win 
my my two shoots are called the Zululand gong shoots, and then we have Midlands gong shoots, which is up towards the Drakensberg. And um, it's become quite a thing of bragging rights to be able to win these competitions of ours. Absolutely. We'll, we'll get into a bit more. We're just going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back. Camo Warehouse is Australia's leading supplier of quality hunting clothing and accessories. We stock leading outdoor clothing brands such as Rocky Boots, Georgia Boots, Hunter's Element, Ridgeline, Spiker, 511, Stony Creek and many more. Camo Warehouse is the leading supplier of optics and shooting accessories including Leopold, Bushnell, Zerotech, Lyman, Powerbeam and Lightforce. We can also order in custom Boyd stocks from the US to your specific requirements. Camo Warehouse offers offers flexible, zero-interest payment options including Afterpay and ZipPay. Order via our website at camowarehouse.com.au or give us a call on 02 6771 2836. Nico, speaking about that, when you have your gong shoot, how many people do you normally you know, get turning up over the weekend to uh, do the gong shoot? Well, our gong shoot is capped. Um, unfortunately, we have to cap it at 60 guys shooting. Um, and when we have a field of, we normally end up with a field between 50 and 60 guys uh, competing, and that would take the whole day. So we start shooting at about 7 in the morning, and normally we're done with anything between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So it's literally whole day of shooting. And then on, on the Friday before the shoot, uh, we used to only have the sight in, give guys a chance on the 800-yard range. You know, I feel with the competition, long-range competition, you need to give guys proper sight and conditions and everything before the start, uh, the shoot starts. So everybody starts on a level playing field, you know. And what's happened is over the time, guys have asked us, can't we do something else on the Friday as well? And now we, we have a king of one mile competition on the Friday. And um, so you sight in your rifle out to 800 yards and right next to the sighting range, you go put your name on a list and you fall into line to shoot the king of one mile. First gong around a thousand yards, second gong around thousand two hundred, thousand three hundred yards, th- then thousand four hundred, thousand five hundred, and then the last gong being right at a mile. And yes, it's become really competitive. Basically, the last two or three that we've had, if you miss more than two shots, then you have no chance of, of winning. Um, the guys winning the competition having missed only one shot or having a full score. And that's at, at those ranges. So guys shooting has really, really improved over the past uh, three or four years. Is there any limit on certain firearms you can use or calibers or anything like that? What are you, what are you generally seeing there in regards to uh, rifle calibers that people shoot on the gong shoot weekend? So our limit is uh, 338 Lapua Magnum, just because... Uh, on the next day of the shoot, the longest gong is only a thousand yards away. So if you if you're using any calibers bigger than that, it becomes a real issue um, with 50 shots to keep the gong standing if the calibers are getting too big. So we've managed to put a system together, and those gongs take a beating, but they keep standing for for the 50 shots to go through there, uh, 50 shooters. Um, but I mean, you, you, three shots at every gong. So if guys are hitting, you know, the, the round count really counts up and how, how many hits you're getting. But caliber-wise, you'll be surprised. Um, for the first probably um, two years of the competition, the uh, six millimeters, 6.5 millimeters were really dominating, <laughs> unbelievably. Yeah. Um, and then later on, the 30 calibers come, came in and they started doing better, seven mils. And now lately, 
the guys that have stuck to their 338s and learned how to shoot them well and uh, learned to manage the recoil on those rifles are really starting to show now. Um, they've got an edge in the wind, but in the beginning, guys didn't realize that you need to manage the recoil and the gun doesn't do all the work. But like I said, the guys that have stuck to their 338s are really showing an edge now. Um, the last competition we had in, in February was actually won by 338, uh, Le Poor Magnum, a locally made gun called Trevello. Uh, one by Brendan Fike. He's from South Africa and he's also going to shoot King of Two Miles in France. So, yeah, um, good win for him there. And then the King of One Mile was won by 300 WSM. Funny enough, which I won myself, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, when people listen to the show, Nico, they're probably saying, well, how did Nico go? Did he did, did he win the competition? Or? <laughs> yeah, often, often guys have quite an issue with... Uh, with match directors and stuff like that, um, or, or organizers winning their own competitions. But I think in the first three or four of my own competitions, I did so poorly that when I, I finally, I got my first uh, uh, gong shoot win on the five range course last year. Um, and my brother and myself managed to, to win for the season in the team division. And then the first King of One Mile win only this year that guys know I've struggled so much before that it was <laughs> fair and square and probably quite a bit of luck involved to do get the win. But um, it changes up a lot and it's become so competitive. Your total score on the on the shooting day is about 1,500 points. And when we started the competition, a 900 or 950 would, would win the weekend, you know, hands down. And now if you're scoring anything less than about 1,200, you're just not in the running at all probably to be in the top five. So it just shows the the competition has pushed uh, guys to really better shooting at those distances. Yes. You were talking about the area. How far is that gong shoot from like where you live? And um, in that area, is there? do you find you live in a high wind area or, or not really? It's not really known for its windy conditions. We, we never have... Uh, well, let's start off. The, the the competition is basically in the town where I live. So just to give you a bit of background on that, what we do is every competition is in a different uh, location. So they never, it's not a set place and it's always in the same place. So I'll go out on the farm and literally found a big, find a big valley and set up the gong shoot in the valley. Or I'll find, um, you know, a, a mountain and set it up into the mountain or something like that. And the gongs literally... I'll go and do planning. So I'll go with my range finder and range all the five different ranges and knock in pegs just so I know where I've marked them from and take pictures. And I, 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 I take little white hands that I edit in and I point to markers that I've identified, a, a big rock or a tree or something where I'm planning to put the gongs. And then I'll drive down and actually see, will the stand stand there? Will they stay up? Is there space for the flag and that type of thing? And then the gongs literally go up one day or two days before the shoot. They'll go up on the Thursday. The Friday we'll sight in on the shooting range and do the King of One Mile. And the Saturday we shoot the competition. So when when we shoot that competition, it's literally every single person that's there, it's the first time that they've shot there. No one has shot there ever before. And then the next competition will change to an, another venue. They're all like probably about within a 20-kilometer radius of each other. But Every competition we host is in a, in a new area and it's a, no one shot there before. So it really levels the playing field. No one knows what's, what to expect. And then for the wind, we not, I wouldn't say we do get August month. We do get quite a bit of wind, 
but mostly most days very calm in the mornings and afternoons and the midday going to 10 15 miles an hour like that but um uh, you know nothing serious the challenge more is just being crossing those valleys and you get like some of those valleys get quite small at the top so you get that venturi effect where the wind accelerates or changes direction or makes an eddy and hey, we've seen seen some strange <laughs> things from the wind in, in, <laughs> in these competitions over the years you know yeah I was, yeah it's, it seems like a lot of fun how many times do you do that per year is it just once a year or how many times do you do it so the, the Zululand one that I host is twice a year we'll have one in February and one in September and then the Midlands one that they also host two normally I think one towards July June July and then one towards the, like November um, so we have four a year, and then every shoot you get point. You obviously get the points that you score, and then you just indicate if you want to take part, part in the championship. It's basically there's no cost anything to it. If you've paid to enter the competitions, you in all of the all four of them count. So obviously we try to encourage the guys to come to all of our shoots. But if you've only gone to two or three or whatever, you can still be in the running. And then end at the last shoot of the season, we'll tally up all the points and we'll have a individual one, two, and three. We'll have a team one, two, and three, and then uh, or first, second, third, and then a king of one mile first, first second, third. And that uh, championship has really pushed up the, the pressure. You know, I saw end of last season on our last shoot, everybody that was sitting high in the ranks, the wheels came off completely in that last shoot. <laughs> we had totally different different winners and, and different guys performing because it was the first time we did it and the, I think the pressure just got to everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say in um, that time of the year, like uh, when's your when's your summer? Is it July, August, middle of the year? No, no, that's that's our winter. Okay, so, so same winter, same as here, yeah. Winter starts in, in April, May, June, July, and then August it's over. And then it starts heating up from there. What's your What's it like in summer there? Does it get pretty hot? Have you got just dry heat, or have you got humid conditions? I'm about where I'm based. We're about eighty kilometers from the ocean, but we've also about three thousand foot or a thousand meters above sea level. So, it our area is known to be very temperate. We don't get very cold in the winter, like we barely ever see. Um, sub-zero degrees Celsius temperatures, very, very little. If it goes under 10 where I live, it's cold. Everybody says it's cold. We're wearing jackets and (laughs) trousers and everything. And then in in the summer, we do get days now and again that will hit 40, but probably average hot summer's days, 31, 32 degrees Celsius. So very temperate, you know, very nice area in regards to temperature. But if you go just down the mountain from where I am, um, closer to the coast, uh, we've got some sugarcane down there. And I remember a few Decembers ago, the probes in the soil that check for the moisture and the sugarcane. Over Christmas time, I think for about a week at once, they were uh, in, in the afternoons around 2 o'clock, they were averaging 45 degrees Celsius um, with a wow. bit of humidity. So that's ter- terrible being down there. <laughs> yeah. Your your temperature seems very, very similar to, to Sydney, Australia. I mean, even though I live in a, a big city sort of thing or just on the outskirts of a big city, I mean, we get the similar, you know, if you're talking degrees Celsius, we get, you know, we might get to zero occasionally, but it's not that often. I mean, 
10 degrees like you, 12 degrees is still pretty cold, 5 degrees, and then very similar in summer, you know, you know, we can get averages of 28, 29, 30, um, up to 40 some days when you, you get a really bad couple of days, you can get... I think we had one last year. It was about forty-five degrees Celsius, and uh, I, I don't mind the dry. I don't, I don't mind the dry heat, but as soon as you, I start getting like a humidity, and oh, man, I, I hate humidity. I, ha- I hate yeah, it. It's terrible, terrible. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> I, terrible. I'd rather I'd rather go to Las Vegas, Nevada, in America, where it's nice and hot and dry, than than have the humidity. It's just it's just terrible. Yeah, we have we have relatively. I would say the the, the um. Yeah, relatively high humidity, but not terrible. Not like on the coast. Not not that that hot, sticky <laughs> type of humidity that you'd get closer to the ocean. Absolutely, mate. Tell us about what about just just game hunting and hunting animals in in South Africa. What can you sort of hunt over there, and um, what's your favourite go to animals to hunt, man? So we, as a, as our farming entity, we're involved with a community project. Some of the the local guys got some some land from from government and we've stayed involved it used to be ours government bought it uh, for the locals and we helped them manage it and on this property KZN you're basically looking at uh, the endemic species or the species that uh, that KZN is known for it's basically Kudu and Nyala and then the Impalas um, Bushbuck Dyker uh, Steenbuck Warthog Bushpig um, Blessbuck, Blue Wildebeest, you know, we have quite a few giraffe around, zebra. So in that sense, we're very spoiled with a, quite a large variety. <laughs> there probably a few that I'm, that I'm leaving out now. <laughs> uh. And uh, then our bread and butter animals would have to be Impala and Blessbuck. Most of the hunters that we get in every season hunt those uh, for biltong, drivors, burivors, uh, that, that type of thing. And um, then, yeah, kudu also very popular, and Yala very popular. Being hunters ourselves and uh, uh, mentoring these guys, we've set up a system where the pricing is really reasonable. Um, and not uh, game farms have become quite commercial and quite quite expensive in, in many senses. And we've managed to keep the prices reasonable, still making a decent profit for these guys, but getting decent groups. I mean, most of my groups have been coming for four or five years straight. And I've always got a waiting list of around 25 people that do want to come. So it really shows. And that consistency and having the same groups and and good people coming and building a relationship with our guides that we have down there, I, I think really pays off in the, in the end. They get a quality hunt and we get quality uh, clients that hunt with us. So, is so that, yeah, that, is, that really pays off. Is that on the same farm that you guys are farming on or, or a different sort of property? Um, the property, it used to be ours, but it's in amongst, it's probably about five kilometers from the properties that we are farming. And um, they've also, the community also have a bit of sugarcane on there and a bit of timber that we help them farm. Um, yep. cause they got the property, but government don't give them any equipment. So the farmers help, um, in, in, in supplying some equipment and the expertise. I mean, I'm probably a fourth or fifth generation farmer. So we've grown up with it, our parents, grandparents, everybody's farming. It's it's in our blood. So we basically give them a hand with expertise and helping them just get get it going. Um, many of them are previously disadvantaged um, as they get called here from apartheid era and that type of thing. So not much experience in commercial farming. And 
that's where the relationship comes in. We've got a very good working relationship with them. It yeah. works really well now. Not, not, not to get all political and everything, but, you know, obviously we hear a lot about South Africa over here in Australia, you know, things that are going on, there's some you know, murders and things like that. Have you seen any of that sort of thing in your area or you're in a pretty good area, no real issues in where, you're, where you live? Our area, we're very fortunate. The um, the relationship between the the farmers and people in town and the the larger community is is very good. We do get odd um, like theft, uh, mostly small things, and from time to time you do get syndicates that come in and steal, especially like Land Cruisers and Hiluxes and those working type vehicles. But it comes and goes. But I think in general we we're pretty lucky. Um, We've got quite a good security system going. We've got a security company that works hand-in-hand hand with the farmers and, and town. It's the same people. And uh, we've got cameras everywhere that can trace cars. And so yeah, it, you have to stay on top of it. But so far, it's actually, we're very lucky in the area that uh, crime, if, you, if you've got all your systems in place, is relatively low yeah. um, compared to other areas. But in the larger South Africa, yeah, um, government seems to be trying to silence it, but uh, a lot of farm murders taking place, people living on farms getting murdered for petty things like cell phones and stock theft and that type of thing. And, um, yeah, police seem not to really be doing anything about it. So it's pretty concerning. But hopefully hopefully, it, 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 uh, there'd be a turning point and, and get better soon. The farmers are starting to put pressure on government in various different forms. Mm. in trying to sort out the root of the problem, you know. But it is concerning as a farming community. You never know when you'll be next or when it will move over to where you live, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good to see it's not, you know, not happening in your area. But you, you were speaking about that. Do you do you guys get any issues over there with, you know, poaching any of the animals or, any, or you know, anything like that? Any poaching activities or...? Yeah, we. I've, I, I was chatting to to this community that we run the game from for a, a few weeks ago in a meeting. We have a monthly meeting where we just discuss planning and where what's going. And and I said to him, you know, having a game farm or game ranch. I'm not sure what you guys call it over there, but farm having game animals on to hunt. Um, compared to sugarcane, like you need to put down fertilizer on your sugarcane yearly to get a. A productive crop off there and in South Africa basically if you were running a game ranch you need to have anti-poaching units that is a cost that many people think you have them and they can go away after a while or you it's it's an ongoing problem um it's never really been bad it's always been there but with COVID-19 this year and a lot of uh, people not working it's really really escalated we would normally use about two game guards for the whole property which is around uh, 5,000 hectares of game of game area. And that would be enough, you know. And once in two or three months, we'd have poaching. Yes, and with COVID-19 and everyone sitting at home and obviously people struggling because they're not getting paid and they need food and this and that, poaching's gone through the roof. In you know, just after we had our lockdown and uh, towards the middle of the year, poaching went through the roof. We'd have poaching weekly. And um, it, wow. it seemed to come down. It seemed to come down a bit now, but we've literally had to triple the. I've got two game guards on each of the two properties, and then two extras just going around, and um, 
it's still a lot. We know we had some poachers last week again coming in. The, the main poaching is with dogs. Guys come in in big groups with big groups of dogs and they chase the the animals down and and, and catch them like that, you know. And then often it, it's a traditional traditional type of hunting. And often that when you do call out the police and stuff like that, it's a bit of a problem. It's a traditional sport for them. They don't see it as a crime. But if you read the laws of the country and that it is a crime, you're not allowed to be on <laughs> yeah. property containing game with dogs hunting without permission. You know? What so are it, they? It can be a bit of a struggle. I was going to say, what are they generally going after? Any specific type of species, or there are species like what, that I forgot to mention when we were speaking about it earlier. We've got the mountain reedbuck and reedbuck, and they they're very well camouflaged in grass plains. So as soon as they sense pressure, they'll go and lie down. And obviously, if you're hunting them with the dogs, that just makes them an easy target. They go and lie down. And especially reedbuck are specially protected animals. So you need special permits to hunt them. And permits are few and far between. If we take off maybe one a season, it's a lot. A lot of seasons we don't take off any. And these are the animals that are actually taking the shots because because of their escape or defense mechanism of lying down and camouflaging it just doesn't work with guys that aren't with dogs so smaller type animals you know and also kudu cows and that but the bigger animals like blue wildebeest and kudu bulls tire out the dogs and they often fight back with, with their horns so they don't really go for those but i have seen them um they've got all kinds of tactics chase them onto the edge of a cliff or over the edge of a cliff or into dams and yeah, it's, it's quite brutal. Yeah, excellent, mate. We're just going to go to another quick break and we'll be right back. Gunkeeper has been developed by the National Shooting Council to help gun clubs with cash grants to help them keep members and keep their doors open. It also helps gun dealers and other shooting businesses attract and keep customers with incentives. If you run a gun club or gun business, make sure you put your hand up for Gunkeeper today. For more information, go to the National Shooting Council's website at nationalshooting.org.au. Nico, tell me about which we were having a chat about before the show. Now, I love it. You And you sent me a picture as well. I thought it was fantastic. Um, you can hunt, which people may find in Australia weird, I guess, but I love it. I think it's absolutely fantastic because we've got to support all types of hunting. doesn't matter what country you're from. All the animals are, are different. But baboon and monkey hunting, I love it. Tell me about it. Primates, <laughs> interesting, interesting <laughs> topic. Um, you, sent, you saw the picture I sent you. Um, we we yeah. take a lot of flax for for hunting them. Um, monkeys, baboons mostly come in and pest control, so it's not really getting guys hunting them for trophy or, or something like that. It's very little. It's ninety nine percent pest control, and the only thing I can can think that's caused the population explosions that we have. Um, Years ago, there was no sugarcane in the area, um, which is a source of, of food to them or obviously energy. They just chew, chew it and spit it out again. But the, the, the habitat wasn't as good to them as it is now. And with all the huge areas of sugarcane and then with the population increasing, some veggie patches here and there, the populations have just tripled or, or even more. When I, I remember growing up, there was one... Um, one uh, troop of baboons uh, near near my house where I was staying with my parents, and um, that sugarcane maybe once a month they'd come up and get stuck into the sugarcane, and we'd 
you shoot them and they'd leave again. And maybe a month later or two months, months later, mostly winter periods when food in the felt is, is scarce. They'd come up and eat sugarcane. Now, at this stage, I try and keep tabs of, the, of them. If they're not in the cane, we leave them alone. If they stick to the felt, we don't hassle them because they don't do any damage. When they get into the cane and they start doing damage, they're very destructive. They also get into trees and just snap them in half and wattle bending or whatever. You know, the kids also play like that. But they get into those trees and snap them in half. And when they get into that, we try and manage them. And at this stage, I know probably of about five troops in our area. And they've gone into areas where previously where you'd never see them. They've gone in there and they're probably about 60 or 70 per troop. So those baboons get stuck into a cane field. Um, you get back there in the afternoon, it looks like it's been harvested. Um, there's no cane left to speak of. So they do massive, massive amounts of damage, and so do the monkeys. So we really try and manage them and just not not obviously take off all of them, but just remove them from the areas where they are doing a lot of damage. Um, they're also very destructive, and if they get into houses and they – we, we we have a lot of labor working. They they are danger to them. So, yeah, really quite. It's a never ending job trying to manage those those baboons. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw on Matt's uh, when he was at Vitmos Cliff, and they get into the little house there. They start eating the butter and the bread and <laughs> all these crazy things. You know. Yes, they uh, they, are, they turn a the house on its roof if they get inside. I know. They just basically just. To rip everything apart and just make a mess out of everything, you know. So it's unbelievable how destructive and, you know, something they do and you don't do know if it's just by chance or what, but they get up into the tops of the trees and they bend them over. But they always seem to be doing it across road. So then you try and drive across the road and all the trees have been snapped and bent across the road, which makes life difficult and uh, <laughs> always pulling down things and breaking things and you know, they've just got a you know, really, really destructive nature. Do Monkeys, the, not was, so much, but still, yeah, still do quite a bit of damage. I was going to say, which one, like is it the, the vervet monkeys or the, the the baboons, the most destructive ones out of the two? The baboons are by miles the most destructive. Um, they're a little bit smaller numbers. Monkeys are in huge numbers everywhere. There's probably a few, a few thousand just around our area. Um, but they, they're not as, as clever as the baboons. The baboons are my vehicle. They, they, they learn which vehicles are danger and which are not. So like my Land Cruiser, if I see baboons at about seven, 800 yards and I stop, I don't even need to open my door. They run away. They don't stick around if they see my vehicle. Um, where monkeys, if a tactic I often used to shoot monkeys, I keep my two to three with me daily. I'll drive. Probably if I if I see them in a valley or something, I'll move back about 200 or 250 yards and I'll just sit there. And then they'll start, they get inquisitive and they'll start pop, popping up and trying to see where I am. And often you get a chance to pick off like five or six of them like that, where baboons, one shot, if it's missed, if it's hit, you don't see them again for the rest of the day or maybe even still tomorrow. And like I say, eyes are unbelievably sharp. They see you from a kilometer away. And if you just do anything that looks Look suspicious, they'll just run off and you won't they get into the trances, the cliffs and stuff like that and you won't find them again for the day or two. <laughs> I was gonna say they kind of remind me of human beings, you know, the descendants of primates, you know. <laughs> I think I think that's what pushes the buttons why some uh, 
<laughs> Some people get quite upset about that. Um, yeah, I was, <laughs> was going to say you like a celebrity, mate, when you you're on that. So, and just for so if people don't know, um, Nico sent me a photo of like him, uh, like one of those. Was it what would you call it? Like uh, anti hunting pages. Put him on there with a picture of the of the monkeys that he must have posted on uh, Facebook. And I'm like, well, you know, th- these anti hunters, they just don't seem to understand, you know, pest control or conservation. They just don't understand it. Yeah, that that particular page is, is ridiculous. You know, they they frown upon any form of hunting, um, whether it's management of game, just normal hunting for meat, um, trophy hunting, anything. They just go out and find people, and um, they they found my picture. I don't know how, and posted it on their group. Yes, and <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was on there. And within from when I see when they posted it, within twenty four hours, I started getting hate mail and. <laughs> it's incredible the things people will send you. Uh, I'm uh, quite quite thick skin, so I laugh it off. But um, yeah, no, they they got quite stuck into me. But I just sent them a message. I said, "Geez, guys, I see you guys have shared my picture. Um, thanks a lot. I see I've got about um, five hundred uh, five hundred shares, and I think about two and a half thousand comments in." in the span of a day. I said, you guys are doing my profile wonders. Thank you very much. And I just left it at that. I never heard of him again. Uh, that's funny, man. It's funny. Yeah, they, it's, don't worry. Don't worry, Nick. It's, it's universal. We've we got the same type of people, you know, in Australia. They're all over the world. You can't get away from them. That's unfortunate, but we just can't get away from them. Yeah, it's such a, such a pity. They do so much damage because uh, they're uneducated in, in and how it really works in our area. I mean, I'm involved with that with that community hunting project. And traditionally, the people that, that, that got that land are, are Zulus. And traditionally to them, game is hunted with dogs and it's food. There's no real economical value to it. And with us joining them and managing that, that property, they've really added value to game. And they buy in more game with their pro- profits. And they they... We, they they paid to get a chopper to count the the numbers of the games and they really manage the game well because they they you know they see the the value of game and that's how you keep game alive you add value to it. There's a saying locally probably everywhere, but they say if it pays it stays. If you can get something for it, it will be looked after and it will stay. And and these guys don't know it. They just ex- they think Africa is just a wide open expanse where animals can just walk around and and. And and eat to their liking, but it's not like it. In many areas, we we very overpopulated and need to manage these animals. A lot of areas, like our areas, we have a bit of spotted hyena in our area, which are predators, and a bit of jackal, um, and some leopard. But you know, lions and stuff like that, and big in uh, big numbers, we don't have. So there's nothing that manages the game and like removes the the weak the weak members. And we run fully natural populations, so they're not artificially stimulated we'll if we put in a new species we'll put it in with a good breeding herd and from there it needs to run on its own so you need to see that you don't hunt too many that the population grows and, and stays strong and uh, they don't realize that when uh, when they when they start uh, trying to uh, you know humiliate or, or cause problems for people that, that do these things so it's actually quite unfortunate they they're causing problems for the very animals that they that they say they love. Yeah, 
Yeah, mate, couldn't have said it better myself. Now, I'm not sure if I asked you, of all that game you've got to hunt, it sounds just like a hunter's paradise over there. What's your number one favourite game to hunt, whether it's pest control or for meat, whatever it is, what's your number one favourite animal to hunt? I'd have to say my number one or my favourite animal to hunt is actually one we don't get in KZN. Um, that's why I go up to the Eastern Cape. I'll I'll go up to the Eastern Cape yearly. It's about a thousand two hundred kilometre trip one way, um, up to where to where you know where Matt hunts up at mostly of that area, and they've got fellow deer that that were introduced up there, and I absolutely love hunting fellow deer. Everybody knows when they speak to me, I'm always looking for new places to hunt them, and I think the thing that draws me to them is just the the um, you know, impala, you get a, a young impala, a medium-sized and a large impala, whatever. They all look the same. The variety in fellow deer, they're different colors. The antlers look, or horns look different, you know. Um, none of them are exactly the same. And then if you shoot them in the right type, time of the year, the meat is excellent, you know, and they've got that good layer on fat and it's not the right yet. Mm. So I'm I'm always looking for some place to hunt uh, fellow deer. But then locally with us, kudu. I think Kudu's on the top of most guys' list. They can the big bulls are really difficult to hunt. Really clever. Call them great ghosts. They just disappear into into nowhere. But yeah, it's quite difficult for me to say I, <laughs> I love hunting, so I'm not really too picky in in what I hunt. You know, if you hunt uh, ethically and you hunt hunt animals the right way, it, it's always a challenge and always fun to hunt most of them. You know. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? I did sort of read about that where the the fallow deer population in South Africa are, are quite concentrated and we've got a good number of fallow deer actually in Australia and you are correct, I've shot uh, fallow deer that you know, that nice white, sandy, you know, yellowy, sandy colour, spotted colour. And then other times you've got that really rich, dark chocolate fallow, very different colours. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you too, man. Fallow deer is probably, of all the deer species we've got in Australia that were introduced, um, you know, fallow deer is probably the top of my list too. Yeah, there's such variety. It makes it, makes it awesome too. And it's it's a pity they, they don't survive in our area. We've got quite a plenty ticks in this area and they um, they get sick from the ticks and obviously they, they don't survive here but in the free state of South Africa you get some some fellow there up towards the Midlands Drakensberg area I know there's some populations up there but in most mostly the Eastern Cape they've flourished up there there are hundreds of them there and um, yeah good good fun to hunt them and I don't know if they're that wild where you guys guys live but out here I say to guys that <laughs> they like a combination between a, a, a blessed buck and a bush buck. Our bush bucks stay in very dense forests and very secretive animals and, and blessed bucks stay on the plains. And they're like, but how are they a combination of the two? They stay on plains, but they're just as wild and sneaky as bush buck. You know, the, <laughs> the, the, the big buck are just incredibly difficult to find out there. What about, um, you know, any species you want to hunt in the future? You know, anything that you haven't hunted yet that you'd like to hunt? I mean, not only in South Africa, but anything overseas that might interest you, a, a bucket list to hunt that you might want to go on in the future? A uh, bucket list hunt for me definitely is, is local. Um, I'd still one day love to try and uh, hunt a leopard. Permits at the moment are, are very scarce, and uh, that's also because of pressure from from outside non-hunting groups, but we have actually very 
healthy population of leopard, even where we stay, I mean, we don't actively hunt them or anything at all because they don't do any damage. But we know of quite a few leopard in our area and actually surprisingly very close to town. You found them, find them all around town if you just look in the right place. But leopard, obviously, because they're so difficult to hunt and so so clever and cunning would definitely be one of the species I'd, I'd still like to, to hunt, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, let's well, let's get into the, uh, some good fun chat too. Like, you know, what are your favourite guns? You'd like to do a bit of long-range shooting, which I enjoy myself as well. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, what are your, sort of some of your favourite guns you own? What do you enjoy shooting? Yeah, so my favourite favorite, favorite uh, rifle at the moment is my 300WSM. It's a, a thicker super varmint. And I've shot out the first barrel, so I've replaced, the, replaced it with a Krieger um, one in ten twist because the standard rifle comes out with a one in eleven, and we we're actually chatting about those bullet weights earlier. That's why with those first uh, fellow dance with Matt, I was using one seventy eight cranes to yes. get them to properly stabilize and use them out at long range. And then when I moved over to the one in ten twist, um, I started with two hundred eight grain Hornady LD match, but for some reason where they were shooting really well and the rifle was quite slow. Um, and I could shoot the 225 grain ELD match at probably the same velocity, but they've got a bit higher BC. And I've got a box, tried them, and that rifle shoots really well. Um, when I first fitted the barrel, it was 31 and a half inches. And like I said earlier, we only shoot with suppressors. And with the suppressor on the end, it just became a nightmare to handle. So I've recently gone and cut it down to 26 inches. And yeah, it, it's a. It handles lovely now and it shoots those 225s really well out to a mile. I get uh, consistent hits, dope working out perfectly. So 300 WSM, probably top of my list um, for long range hunting and gong shooting. And then I've got a little six small dasher, which is a, a Hauer uh, 1500, which was a 243, which I cut back to a, a six small dasher. And um, that's also. Probably doesn't have the reach the 300 has, but unbelievable little cartridge in the sense that uh, just so easy to load. That dash is sitting on well over 2,000, probably around 2,500 shots down the barrel, and it just still shoots soft MOA every day of the week. So <laughs> yeah. lovely, lovely little little caliber, you know. Yeah, no, it sounds like anything else in the in the. I don't know if you got to, you have to have a gun safe over there or what you got to have, but anything else that you own that you enjoy. I think you got a two two three, don't you? I've been been a bit of shooting with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I used to. I actually just did an article for one of our local hunting magazines a few months ago, but um, I used to have a little triple two Sarko that uh, 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 little Sarko um, Dixon and. I went hunting with a mate and he shot really well with it and he convinced me to sell it to him and I sold it <laughs> to him and after that I had a 22250 204 Ruger 22 Hornet um, a whole a bag of different uh, rifles and the 223 never really caught my eye it's you know everybody has a 223 it's pretty much a plain Jane rifle you know and after looking at everything um, I'm quite a big Hauer fan as well. I love my Hauer rifles. So looking at everything, the Hauer's got the new mini action 223. And the 223 just made the most sense. Cases are easy to find. Heads are easy to find. Um, rifles are easy to find. So I went with it out of a practical point of view and not really because it was like a rifle I really wanted or a caliber that really caught my eye. 
And I've probably had it for just over a year. And I must say, it's really quickly becoming my favorite rifle. It shoots unbelievably well and it, it travels with me daily. Um, in the pickup, it's basically my, we call them a bucky gun. Uh, stays with me daily in the van and I use it for pest control. And it's just, if you know the rifle well and, and it's accurate, it's an unbelievable tool to use to take off problem animals. Um, I just had it for about a month and I saw a baboon at about 500 yards and I tried to creep closer, but then I'd lose sight of it and there was very little wind. So I thought, well, I'm going to go for gold and see, see what happens. Dialed it up. Uh, it was late afternoon. So the sun was sitting low behind me and shot and I could see through the scope. I could see the bullet flying and it, uh, tracking perfectly, hit the baboon down the shoulder and just dropped him on the spot. And I was pretty <laughs> much uh, con- converted to the two to three from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Guys, we'll just go to another quick break and we'll be right back. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% to the eye light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit osaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. Nico, if you had to pick one though, 300 WSM or the 223, you got to, you can only pick one favourite, mate. <laughs> At this stage, it would probably be the 223, ridiculous as it sounds. <laughs> um, I've just spent so much time with it lately and I've got so much confidence in it. Um, yeah, because if I had to choose one, you'd probably have to use it for everything and the 223 is it's still got its original plastic stock on. Um, I put a small little silencer they locally made called Warrior, but it, it's called the Warrior Shorty. It's a tiny little silencer that I put on the end and a little um, Swarovski Z3 4-12 with that ballistic turret. So, yeah, just so easy to handle, such a tiny, I think the complete package, bipod, rifle, silencer, scope, the whole thing weighs 4.6 kilos. So really tiny, really light, but very, yeah. very deadly. So it's not the it's not a varmint style barrel, it's a sporter barrel. Yeah, it's a well, basically it's it's the I think it's called the super light or whatever. It's it, yeah, at, at the end of the barrel, it's not uh, not much thicker than my than my middle middle finger. You know, it's tiny, tiny little barrel, little mini action. So yeah, it, to compare it, my 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 Hauer Dasher is a is a, the normal Hauer Action thousand five hundred model with a twenty three inch barrel. And the two to three with its silencer fitted is the same length as that rifle in, in, in 24 inches. So it's a really short, little, handy, handy rifle, really light. And then with the plastic stock, very durable. Shoot it across the mirror or lean against a tree or drop it from a fence or whatever. It can really work the little rifle, you know. Yeah, that's true. It is like that, isn't it? I've got a one sporter barrel in the seven mil Magnum. Nothing in a in a smaller caliber, but it, sometimes, yeah, there's a there's a place for the the heavy varmint barrels, and there's a place for the light stuff. Because even in Australia, most of the time, you know, if you're hunting deer in the high country or you've got to be walking around a lot, you can't really. It's sort of different terrain than than South Africa, you know. Especially if you go down to Victoria and you're hunting some of the Victorian high country, you can you wouldn't be able to carry a big 
big varmint rifle with a big scope. You need, you know, absolutely as light as you possibly can. Light scope, sporter, uh, weight, firearm, super light, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, got to have this, you know, the, the, the rifle for the specific, you know, conditions that you're hunting in. Yeah, yeah. I've always had the, I've always been of the opinion that if you, if you could shoot a lightweight rifle really well, um, out to distance, you basically have no need for a for a heavy rifle. Obviously, in our shooting competitions, those type of things, a heavy rifle is just a lot more forgiving. It's easier to manage your recoil and stay on target and see where you're going, that type of thing. But in, in, in the hunting sense, if you've got a lightweight um, hunting rifle that you can shoot well out to uh, five, six, seven hundred yards, then what do you want to carry a heavy rifle for? You've got a light rifle that can get to the distances it needs to get you know we've got a guy that shoots this gong competition of ours he's recently upgraded to a 300 wind mag Howard bull barrel but before that he was shooting a straight uh, Bruno 270 um, hunting rifle uh, with <laughs> yeah. a, I think a 3 to 15 scope and I mean 270 bullets are pretty uh, challenged in the BC department but he, it made it work and it was unbelievable. He was ending like in top twenty positions with a with a straight hunting rifle. And to oh, me, if if you can get to that point, you'll have a major advantage having a light rifle. It's the same rifle you're going to be using at fifty or hundred yards. You can use right up to five hundred. So there'd always be an advantage in having a rifle like that. Absolutely. What about any any purchases on the horizon? Anything else you want to get down the track, or that you've got your eye on that you might want to purchase down the track? Uh. Something that has caught my my attention for a few years now, and which would probably be my next project, is uh, the seven millimeter eight. Um, just for a, I've got that little two to three, which is a n- nice lightweight, say short to medium range, five six hundred yards rifle. And I thought the seven millimeter eight, basically in the same type of configuration, you know, a lightweight rifle, light profile barrel just a normal hunting style stock, maybe with only adjustable cheek piece and a, say, 4 to 12 or 3.5 to 18 power scope that can you can chuck the sling over your shoulder and go walking for miles. But still, if you see a good kudu bull or whatever at four 500 yards and you're shooting a 162 grain bullet, it'll still get the job done. So I've started looking into that. Um, the 7 millimeter 8 is just not a very common caliber in South Africa, so not too many choices. In, 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 in which firearms to buy and stuff like that. I remember many years ago when I first started my deer hunting, you know, back probably, what would that have been, probably 10 years ago, back, you know, 2010, 2011. I remember I used to shoot the 120 grain VMAX and we've got a fairly, fairly healthy uh, goat population over here. So we've got a fair amount of goats and, you know, it depends on what sort of goats you shoot. Some of them, you know, are docile. They haven't been shot before, so you can not walk up to them, but you can get within a couple of hundred metres easy and then just shoot it. The 120 grain VMAX, even for a VMAX, max out of the seven mil eight was just punching straight through them it was a, a dynamite caliber it really was yeah the seven millimeter is quite a, a caliber you know if you look at I, i'm i grew up with a seven by 57 and those type of things they always seem to punch far above the the weight class you look at what they're on paper and then you take them into the field i mean the the results we got with the out seven by 57 compared to my 306 were Similar, you know, didn't stand back at all to the 306. So 
And I thought, well, it's basically, a, to me, the 7 Miller 8 is a modern take on the old 7 by 57 um, Just a, a little bit of a change in case and a bit more efficient. So that's why that, that got my attention. But the 7 mils are really, really incredible, incredible, incredible caliber. Yeah, they sure are, mate. We've got about four or five questions to finish off, but I know, I know from your photos, uh, you've got quite expensive taste in scopes, like most of us do. But you know, we've always it's, we're always struggling to uh, afford uh, the really good stuff. You know what I mean? So tell us about what scopes you're running, and what do you like about them, and what made you choose those particular scopes? Yeah, so on my long range rifles, I used to run um, Night Force scopes on, on both of them, on the 300 and the, the 6 more Dasher. And they they worked relatively well. It was a Nikeforce NXS, obviously not the 8-Tacker, but they worked relatively well. And um, it was just when you started shooting out to a mile and you're getting to the to dialing your scopes to the max, that the picture quality would become quite a limiting factor. You'd battle to spot your own shots and you couldn't see the shots on target at a mile and that type of thing. And uh, chatting to a friend, and I looked through his Swarovski X5, uh, five to twenty-five by fifty. And um, biggest mistake I ever made because once you've looked through one of them, you want one. <laughs> so yeah, I started yeah. the long process and I sold basically sold my two NXSs and started chopping around. And I was lucky to first off, I found one of the five to twenty-five secondhand for a very good price. So I got that for my three hundred, and then a bit later on. I found a three and a half to eighteen um by forty four for my for my six more dasher. And um yes, they they're really unbelievable scopes. Um they are quite expensive, but the, the, the level of service that comes with them, um I managed to, to damage the eyepiece on one of them and sent it back and it was like within two weeks had my two or three weeks had my scope back. When I got there there was a a courier charge and stuff. They just looked at it, drew a line through it, and said, "Enjoy your scope. Um, give us a call if you have any problems again." Yeah. So, yeah, this, the level of service that comes with them, and then just, I mean, at a mile, with a five to twenty-five at a mile, even on when it's really hot and the mirage is boiling, I'll go down to fifteen, sixteen magnification, and I can on on a white gong, I can see shot for shot exactly where the gongs are landing at a mile, and I don't know how many scopes can do that. Um, but yeah, that really sets them apart. And then another big draw card on the X5s, they, they're hunting base scopes. So they, they smaller bodies, 30 more tube, um, light weight. Um, and me, I shoot comp- those competitions yearly, but that's for fun and long range hunting is the main thing I'm into. So that's what my scopes are based on. They make a lot of sense for hunting and they, they're not tactical competition scopes. They, in my opinion, nice long-range hunting scopes. So that's what I love about them. And then on my normal hunting rifles, I've also gone over to the Z3, the Swarovski Z3s, which is the entry-level scopes, but still nice and clear, and they just they work very well. I really like them. How do you – one interesting question, especially I was looking at one of the Z3s or Z5s a while ago. How do you find the difference between, you know, a scope that will dial – I know I think the X5 dials, but compared to, say, the ballistic turret where you can set it for like, you know, two, three, four, and 500 metres, how do you – is it still accurate enough to, to hit like – because I think I saw you shooting some crows um, with that 
with that two, two, three, and it seemed, you seem to be hitting him pretty darn good. So ha- what's the differences between the X5 on dialing and sort of just that ballistic turret style where you set it up for, you know, uh, 200, 300, 400, 500, or whatever it may be, whatever you set it to? Yeah, see, with a, with a, with a Z3, I've basically zeroed the rifle at at 100 yards, and then my first first uh, dot, the green dot, is 200, yellow dot, 250, and then um, the the red dot is 300 yards. And for shooting animals like crow-sized and monkeys and that type of thing, I basically, what I try and do with that rifle is not use a rangefinder. So I look at the animal, I'll estimate the distance, and dial to the to the relevant dot I need to go to. So I estimate it to be 240, I'll dial to the 250 dot, or estimate it to be 210, I'll dial to 200. And for those type of animals, because it's a quite a fast shooting caliber, you're going over 3,000 foot per second, it's forgiving enough that out to 300 yards, you do you, you do hit the, the target 99% of the time. You know, if, if you miss, mostly it's your fault. Um, so what I do then is after 300, I've got my range finder. I'll range and then I, I literally dial it exactly the same way I, I dial the X5. So I put it on my ballistics calculator, monkey, 380 yards, dial the exact amount of clicks. And that's a nice thing. Even with a Z3, those clicks are dead on. You can go and check them. And they, 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 they track exactly. So I just, I've got a little range card as well for after 300 that says 350, 400, 450, 500 if I need to dial quickly and I don't have time to calculate it on my phone. So then I'll just dial to the relative amount of clicks. And, and so anything after 300, I'll basically dial. And even on my X5, my 300 and that type of thing, if I'm going to be hunting, out to 300, I'll take a screenshot or write it on a piece of, of masking tape and just stick it on the side of the stock. 200, I dial so many clicks or, or MOA. Um, 250 so much MOA, 300 so much MOA, even probably out to 350 or 400 with the with the 300. Just the exact amount of MOA to dial because with that type of rifle, it never really changes. You can change the conditions up as much as you like and it will probably never even change a click. And then anything for the 300, anything after 400, I'll sit down, take the wind, take the atmospherics, put everything in and then I dial it properly and set up properly for those type of shots. So it depends a bit on what caliber you're shooting as well. Yeah, I know. Oh, I'm surprised, um, you know, Matt wasn't trying to convert you to uh, Element Optics. Maybe he might in the future. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Matt knows me well. <laughs> He's still trying to convert me to mold and meters. <laughs> he, he, he called me the other day and he's like, he says, because I sent him a picture of something I shot with the, with the dope and he, and he looked at it and he was like, I I can't understand you. I don't know why you're using MOA and yards when you live in South Africa. And it's just, the story behind that I explained to him is that when I grew up, the scopes we had were um, MOA-based scopes at the time. They were American scopes. And I quickly realized there's, there's a big advantage in working in yards when you've got an MOA scope, especially when sighting and knowing how much your clicks are going to move and that type of thing. Yeah. So literally, like from the age of about 13, 14 I've been working in MOAs and in yards, and that's where that my brain works in those uh, <laughs> in, in those uh, uh, numbers. So that's basically what I'm sticking to. And to me, a lot of new shooters that chat to me say, "So what do I get? Do I get MOA or mills or meters or yards?" And I say, "Well, you know, what do you know? What what have you always been using? 
now I've been using MOA or I've been using mold. Use what you have been using. Use what you are used to using. I, my brain works in MOA. I know exactly what I'm doing at MOA. At different distances, I know exactly how much a click is moving my, my point of impact. And you could probably still change over to mills, but if you're used to something, um, I think it's just better sticking to what you know. And then obviously there's a little bit of a finer adjustment. It's minimal, but we have seen that there's a slight advantage in the finer adjustment on your MIA scopes. It's interesting in Australia too, actually. I mean, most probably long-range shooters or PRS shooters in Australia, you know, they'll they'll use mills. But, I mean, if you had to probably pick it, uh, Australia probably would be the same, you know, using mostly use MOA, especially on all the hunting scopes. Uh, most of them will be, you know, MOA, or if they're cheaper, you might have, you know, a mill reticle with an MOA turret. I don't know why scope manufacturers still do yeah, that stuff terrible. for. Terrible, absolutely <laughs> terrible. Unless what I do use is sometimes, I've got a little, I've got a little Tika tw- uh, T1X, the little 22 LR long rifle. So yeah. I, I take that out with the Strelock app, and what I I use the mills, uh, the five mill dots on the scope on the on the reticle, I should say, and I can get that 22 out to about 160 meters before I've got no reticle left. So I don't dial it or anything. I just use the um, use the 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 reticle. It seems to do a pretty darn good job. Like I'm hitting a. Uh, steel rabbit-sized gong at like 160 metres, and I gave it to my friend to have a look at. I said, listen, shoot this, get this distance, tell me the distance, and I'll tell you which you know which one to hold on. And he'll go, oh, like 150. And I said, all right, four and a half mils, just aim in between the four and the five. And he said, yep, yeah, bing, bing, bing. He's hit, he's loving it. Yeah. He was loving it, you know? Yeah. In a, in a, in a rifle like that, it definitely won't ask you too much. We, on my... On my Swarovskis, I use those uh, MOA reticle with the MOA scope. The nice thing is we shoot in teams. So when someone misses, you just put your reticle on and you say, you've missed left three MOA, two MOA, whatever it is, and he dials it immediately. But I mean, on average hunting scope, if you're just using it to get out to different distances, they, they work quite fine. Absolutely, mate. What about um, this? Has been a, a hot topic too. I've done a lot of interviews with um, uh, a guy from New Zealand just recently on terminal ballistics, and especially around using you know match bullets like ELDMs. Like as we spoke before the show, I'm going to run a 208 grain Hornady ELD match. What are you finding with uh, expansion on game with using match bullets? Because I think some of these, uh, especially the ELDMs, you know, it might be a different tip, but I think a lot of it's formerly possibly the the old Amax bullets, so which were quite good for hunting. So, how are you finding the two twenty five ELDMs or just any ELDM in general when um, you're hunting game? Yeah, on my, on my long range, if we're speaking long range hunting specifically, yeah, they they lovely hunting bullets. A lot of guys will often question, say, "What's wrong with you? Those are match bullets. Why are you shooting them?" And there's a big, uh, I don't know how to say it, but the guys don't. Um, differentiate between they both match match bullets but you get hollow point match bullets um not singling out anybody but like the burger or nozzle custom competition the poor sin or any and then you get ballistic tipped um long range type bullets or match bullets eldms amaxes those type of things and in my in my personal experience hollow point hollow pointed match bullets like the old match kings i've used as well are quite hit and miss in long-range hunting. Some of them will expand perfectly and do the job really well where the next bullet will just pencil straight through. I had some 
some burger and they were actually at their hunting range bullets penciling through Springbuck at, at 350 yards. You shoot a shot, you don't hear an impact. Animal looks like it's been missed. And luckily I, I watched him because I couldn't believe it was a miss. I watched him, he trotted off probably about 100 yards and dropped stone dead. Where with ELD match and before that I was using the AMAXs, they work perfectly. Um, I shot an Impala a few years ago at 500 and something yards. Bullet recovered on the opposite side under the skin, um, 60 plus percent weight retention. Um, and at close range, they they do come apart, but so do the the um, the, the ELDX bullets also come apart at close range. So there's no real disadvantage. You keep close range, you keep your neck, head shots. If you need to go in the body, go behind the shoulder. But long range, they work really well. I love them. Um, I was out at a friend's place a few weeks ago and he hunted a water buck with my 300, I think the shot distance was about 670 yards. And he hit the animal that was quartering away. So he hit to the far back and the bullet sat on the opposite shoulder under the skin, dug it out, perfect mushroom, I think 70% weight retention. I mean, those are, are real life uh, results. You can't argue against those. Yep. Um, so one of the ELD match, love using them. That's my go-to bullet. Um, in my little dasher, because it's still got a one and ten inch twist, I can't shoot the LD match. They but uh, but heavy or but long for the twist. So I use a V maxes. V maxes for long range shooting work just as well. If you, as soon as you go over three hundred yards, they hold together. They mushroom perfectly. And the most important part with long range hunting is you want a bullet that opens that causes enough damage. Um, especially we use the meat and we, we, we you want to. It's not a lot of the stuff's not just varmint control and. A lot of it is thick vegetation, so you don't want the animal to hit it and run 100 meters. You want to hit the animal, pretty much go down in the spot or go 20 yards and go down so you can find them easily and not lose them. So, yeah, they, I, I love them. Those, those ELD matches work really, really well. At 225, I must tell you, um, hits incredibly hard. It's, uh, it's, I had a guy shoot a... Sorry, go on, go on. You're right, go on. You're, you're right, go on. I had a... I had a guy shoot a wildebeest with one, a blue wildebeest with one a few weeks ago, and he was amazed. He hit it on the shoulders at about 350 yards, and it just dropped straight down, and they're known to be quite quite tough animals, and it just dropped them on the spot. And the guy just looked at the rifle, and he looked at me and said, this rifle is amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, they work really well, and they hit really hard, you know. It's it's interesting because I've got a 260 as well. I was, yeah, in a, it, uh, people will probably laugh that are the 6.5 Creedmoor owners, but you know, over here there's a bit of a joke, you know, if you sort of, you know, if you've got a 6.5 Creedmoor, you know, there's sort of a, there's an underlying thing going on in Australia, like, you know, uh, you're a bit girly if you own a 6.5 Creedmoor, right? So I, I said I said to <laughs> myself, over, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, no, nah, I'm either going to get a 6.5 by 55 or a 260 you know saw a bunch of guys on the internet matt uh 260 rips from england and a lot of guys using the 260 and i thought to myself i'm going to run the 143 grand eldx too and then i said to myself all right i might run eventually once i shoot these boxes out i might run a 140 grain eld match and on my last hunting trip 
the I was I'm I'm getting ready to go away from the 70 grain Blitz King in the 243 over to the 87 grain VMAX and um, when I put because the 243 it just wasn't playing ball it was raining that weekend I didn't have a chance to zero the rifle so at 250 meters I was just missing too many I thought nah that's going to go back in the bag and I'm going to get out the 260 man those even the 143 grain ELDX may on some of these rabbits if you've just been looking at Instagram some of these rabbits are just just pop eh? pop, man (laughs) just vaporizing and I'm like oh shit maybe and then it was literally about probably a week before I went away uh, there's a uh, a gun shop in a different state and they had some pretty good deals on uh, the 140 grain ELD match and the BC is really good I think like 650 646 and I bought like yeah. a th- I bought like a thousand of them and then I went on the trip man and they were just the rabbits were just <laughs> popping not, not every single one but I probably had about five or six Most shots of yeah out of 40 or maybe yeah maybe six or seven out of 40 I'm like what even my mate's filming on the camera and he's like what on earth's going on and i said i don't know but this is awesome <laughs> you know, this is awesome <laughs> so i don't know if the, yeah. i don't know if i'm going to get enough uh pop from the the 140 i mean you know i shouldn't be so morbid and say that but you know like when you're filming you do want to get you know you don't just sometimes you don't just you want do a reaction yeah you want a reaction not just a bit of a bang flop situation it's a bit boring when you're filming yeah. so and uh you know when you when you're popping them it's you know obviously very humane because you know to be honest there's not much left after that so i, I would be surprised if those 140s would, would do anything less in my experience the the, the 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 x is definitely a little bit harder than the m at distance so i think you'd you'd get the same results even maybe a little bit more explosive from those M's. I think you're really going to enjoy them. I, I love mm. them. Yeah, um, I think so. To me, the, X, yep. the, X, the X at close range is explosive and at longer range, not so much. I'm talking other side 500, that, that distance. And then the, the M's are still opening really well. So at below 500, I think they're going to pop pop really well. Yeah, the, the ELDXs, most of those ones that were popping were sort of, you know, anywhere from 180 meters up to you know a bit. Even even one, I had two of them in, in one shot. The first one got hit pretty hard, didn't pop. But the second one, holy crap, man! I was like, even my mate sat there. He's like, what the? And I said, shh, shh, we're filming, man. Shh, shh, be quiet, man. Like, don't be laughing and don't be laughing in that. But um, yeah. And then I started to second guess. Holy crap! I just bought 1,000 ELD matches, like um, you know, a week before. For that, holy shit, I might have to stick with the ELDX, but yeah, I think you're right too, man. I think it comes down to they were fairly close, so there was still enough speed and enough, you know, obviously energy, and the, the main thing was speed, enough to do that damage, you know, but I assume, you know, yeah. you're right, out at distance, um, you know, they're not going to open up anywhere near as much because, you know, they're slowing down and they've got that harder jacket, and I did find that as well, Nico, with the, the 70 grain Blitz King. They're fantastic, but from what I hear from people in the industry that I know, that the the Sierra, the Blitz Kings are a lot. The, the jacket is not a lot, but it's a lot harder than the Hornady V Max. That's yeah. That's why I want to go back yeah. to the V Max as well. So I've I've heard the same thing. Interesting. You guys shooting rabbits. It's, it's quite a challenge finding bullets that expand nicely because they're so soft and they they give so little resistance. Um, I've seen with monkeys, which are pretty much I put them in the same class as I, as, as those rabbits, and if I'm shooting them out to, say, 500 yards. I've had, quite often, you shoot them and there's basically no reaction and I'll go back to the footage and check and it's, no, it's definitely a hit. And I'll go there and it probably went like 30 yards after the shot. 
And um, especially if you're not hitting big bones, if you're going behind the shoulders, you're only catching ribs or something like that. And even at that, at four or 500 yards, the VMAXs don't open up on monkeys. It's difficult to uh, to get a bullet that will reliably open up. You always have to try and hit like the main main bone structure to get those bullets to open up properly and get the animals to drop drop exactly there. Yeah. So distance where those small animals becomes a bit of a challenge. Um, I think on six millimeters, this 260 and stuff seems to still work quite well out to distance. Mm. And, and yeah, the rabbits are only small, you know, what, uh, eight, nine, 10, 12 inches wide. You know, they're only a small little fluffy animal. And I think that's maybe what happened actually, because they're, you know, 143 grains. You think you'd be getting that from like, you know, the 87 grain VMAX, or if you're shooting 223 or 250, like a, a 50 or 55 grain VMAX or similar. And I was just, I, I said to my mate, oh, what happened? And then we sort of chatted about it over the weekend when we were you know, camping and hunting on the property. And he said, I think maybe they hit some bone structure there, man, because he goes, <laughs> he goes, that was insane. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Often with your, with your close range shots, I find as well, your temporary wound cavity, that shock that goes through the animal on those small animals, the shock wave is just so big. The thing's body can't handle it. And it just pops it apart, especially at close range. When you still have all that shock from the, from the velocity, the small animals just seem to, to come apart. Um, we're on a big animal that would probably just be called meat damage, but on these small animals, they really pop when you're hitting them at closer ranges. Yeah, mate, just a couple more just to, to finish off and I'll let you go, but I wanted to ask you about that just to, just, just to finish off the bullet stuff. You were using the uh, 178 grain out of the 300 WSM. What's, what prompted you to go to the 225 grain? So I was using the 178s because I had this, this stock standard um, ticker super varmint with a 1 and 11 inch twist. That's right. So yep, when I yep. got the rifle, yep. I got some 208s and they seemed to be stabilizing. But when I got to around 800 yards, my my ballistics started doing all funny kinds of things. It wasn't matching up to what the app said they're supposed to be doing. And I was struggling. And then I spoke to someone and they said, listen, the bullet's probably not completely stable and you're getting a BC reduction percentage out of distance. So try something lighter that you know will stabilize properly. So I went on to JBM the stability calculator because you're using a tip bullet to deduct the tip off. And I, I saw the 178 stabilize perfectly. And I went to them and all of a sudden, like those 178s worked really well out to about 1,400 yards. And they they worked perfectly. Dope was matching up perfectly because they were stable. And then I shot that barrel out, and then I changed to the one and ten inch twist barrel. So specifically, so that I could shoot the heavier bullets. And then I went over to the to the two hundred eights, and then over to the two twenty fives because I had the twist that ran them. And I must say, those two twenty five grains, the last four or five times that I've been shooting at a mile, I'll calculate my dope. I use the shooter app on, on my phone with the Kestrel and I've calculated it and my elevation is correct within one click at a mile or 1,720 odd yards or whatever that gong of mine is. Within a click and, you know, to me, I'm very happy with that. If I stay within a click at that distance, um, that's more than good enough for me. Most days I can't probably shoot good enough to stay within a click. So yeah. I, I quite enjoy that and that's why I went with the heavier bullets later. It's just, for that king of one mile competition of ours, it stays supersonic out to that distance. I found with the 178, they drop back through the sound barrier around 1,350, 1,400 yards. 
And once I've dropped back uh, through the sound barrier, I was really struggling to get consistent hits and consistent adjustments that, that I could actually make sense of. Yeah, it's interesting. My mate who lives in Queensland, he just got a, a nice uh, um, uh, 6.5 PRC made, and I think it's got a 27 or 28-inch barrel. And for the first couple of weeks, he was having big trouble with it because because of the twist rate and the amount of speed out of that you know, 6.5 PRC, it was just – Yeah, it was just – the bullets were literally exploding. So because Hornady had the softer jacket, they were just tumbling, sometimes even exploding – and then he went over to Sierra and it had the same thing as well but then he he sort of tracked it down to the to the muzzle brake we're not you know in Australia we're not you know it's crazy but we're not allowed suppressors in Australia they're illegal so we have to use muzzle brakes over in Australia and the, the way the gases were coming out and everything it was just doing something to the bullet he was even doing it to the Sierras but definitely not as bad as um, the the Hornady so you know, every three or four shots he'd have one that either would just explode or it would be um, spinning out of the barrel and spinning to the target. You know, lot, yeah, crazy. Yeah, we. I've actually seen the same thing here at one of our gong shoots. We'd have. I had a guy with six point five two eight four. I think he was shooting the one forty seven grain ELD match, and he was shooting at the mile competition every now and again, like no hit. There's no dust. We we couldn't make out what was going on, and I don't know why. Um, I did it. I take a lot of videos and, and, and pictures and stuff when we have those competitions. And I stood behind them and I took a video from behind shooting, hoping to see where the impact was or something like that, but in slow motion. And he shot. And I thought I'd see, I saw something, you know, 20 to 30 yards in front of the barrel. And I went back to the video. And on the video, you can see the shot go off. And then about 20, 20 yards in front of the muzzle, you just see, poof, just see that bullet explode into dust, eh? So he had exactly the same thing. And it was just those bullets when you're going onto that eight-inch twist and you're pushing them too far over 3,000 foot per second, they just seem to disintegrate when they've gone out the barrel far enough. Mm. And he, he so was using the, exactly the same thing, yeah. He was using the same one as well. It was the one forty seven grain ELDM and I said, mate, I think you just you're just pushing them too fast. And I think he was just using fast, the yeah. Alliant powder over there. Alliant we use ADI powder in Australia, but I think the Alliant powder is just a little bit it's a little bit hotter as well, a little bit faster. And I said, Man, you've got a one in eight twist, you've got like a twenty seven inch barrel, you're really just forcing that hard, mate. You know what I mean? Like straight down the barrel, you've got the longer barrel. Uh, most of my guns are 24 or 26 inch and I said you got that bit extra you know it's just it's just disintegrating them into thin air too much stress on the bullet yeah yeah it's if crazy you, you'll see those exact same bullets if he just brings them down to around 3,000 foot per second it, it should stop and if you go over again but I mean you don't want to be shooting that rifle at 3,000 foot per second, that's got some legs on it <laughs> you'll be shooting that quite a bit faster yeah mate two questions so if you had to, I'll, I'll put these in one question. So if you had to pick long range hunting or your long range gong shooting, which one do you like better? Definitely long range hunting. To me, there's absolutely no uh, comparison. My, my long range gong shoots are actually just practice for long range hunting. Um, the, the, the whole emphasis in our gong shoots are, is placed on first round hit. So your first round hit in every, on every gong counts half the points. And that basically relates back to hunting making sure that you get everything right, right to make the, the first shot count. So to me, long-range hunting, and I mean, each guy can do it the way he likes it, but to me, being able to read your conditions correctly 
And um, getting the bullet in exactly the right spot the first time is quite important. So often if, if it's not problem animals or vomiting, if I'm hunting and I shoot the first shot and I miss, I'll often pack pack up and put the rifle away and wait for the next opportunity and set up again or even go back to the range and check everything and see why I've made a mistake. So I'm, it's a personal thing, but I put quite a lot of emphasis on the first round hit and um, really getting down to a minimum the amount of, uh, of, of chance that you're taking. I mean, a lot of guys think long-range hunters are cowboys and it's unnecessary, but in my, in my opinion, the guys that, that hunt with us every season, the long-range hunters are so much more prepared. Uh, the normal average hunters, you know, everybody's got their place, but they'll pitch up and they'll say, listen, let's go sight the rifles. Oh, my rifle's sighted from last season or shoot one or two shots at 100 yards and they're happy to go. Where long-range hunters, before they even arrive, they'll give me a call and say, do you have a place for us to sight our rifles? How far out can we go? And it normally takes about three or four hours where they check everything, recheck velocities. So the preparation to me with the long-range hunters, I enjoy a lot more. And um, like I say, my gong shoots are pretty much just practice for long-range hunting. Um, getting, Being able to get good long-range shoots first round, you know. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I know there's people out there in the past that have, you know, said, well, they don't like, you know, long-range hunting or it's, you know, not ethical or whatever. But, you know, I always tell a lot of people, listen, it's up to the individual. Ethics is individual. You know, if a person feels they're experienced enough to be able to take that shot, you know, like I think I'm good up to about 500, especially 550, especially on, um, you know, deer size game, that sort of game, no problem. Um, you know, up to, say, 350 for the small rabbits and things like that 400 at best yeah. um you know but again ethics and morals comes down people say well this distance 800 meters is not ethical and i said but not ethical to who you know like it's yeah. it's it's up to the individual if nico or jason or matt or anyone feel like we are confident in ability and skill to be able to make that shot then it's an ethical shot definitely it's knowing your the big thing from the hunter's side is we've got enough pressure on us already is to know your limits. Know, you know, my, my general rule of thumb is if if I can hit reliably out to a certain distance, let's say, to make it easy, 700 yards, my hunting distance will be 500 yards. I always come back 200 from what I can reliably hit. And then you know you're sitting in, in, a, in quite a, a safe zone. You don't want to be saying, I reliably hit out to 700, but I'm struggling at 800. Okay, 700 is my limit. Because it, it really is your limit for maybe shooting steel, but Come back a bit on that just to push up your confidence when, you, when you're hunting animals. But like you say, each, each guy to, to his own. And uh, unfortunately, long-range hunting in South Africa has become quite a, quite a fashion, if I could put it that way. Like uh, similar to PRS or whatever, everybody seems to be wanting to do it now. And, and <laughs> that could cause a lot, or does cause a lot of damage sometimes. Inexperienced guys, you know, they think if they – bias uh, a ticker and whack a knife force onto it, they automatically qualify to shoot out to 800 or 1,000 yards. It doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of hard work, a lot of preparation. You know, often when we're in these arguments with, with guys or disagreements or whatever you call them, I say to them, do you know that for every, every one animal I hunt at long range, I probably take between 150 and 200 rounds on the shooting range of preparation. How many guys that do normal distance hunting can say anything near that? They buy 20 or 40 rounds for the season, and that's what they do. I shoot 1,000 rounds a season on a hunting rifle at least, and then I might hunt 
you know, five or six animals. So, yeah, the preparation on long-range hunting is, just seems to be a lot better to me. Absolutely. Nico, mate, last qu- – well, it's not really a question. Mate, uh, can you tell us a story just to share with my listeners? Maybe um, a good hunting story, something, you know, that stands out in your mind as a, as a good day, a little bit of a you know, two- to three-minute story about a good day hunting, um, maybe one of a, a good animal that you got or maybe a good experience. Yeah, just share a story just to finish off, mate. That would be fantastic. Okay, cool. Yeah, I went out, uh, we got called probably about two or three years ago this happened. I was called by a local farmer that uh, farms cattle, uh, called and said uh, they've got some spotted ahina that are catching the cattle, and he's spoken to Parksport, he's organized permits and everything, but he's not around. Would I mind going out and just seeing if I could get them? They've been catching cattle every night for the last few nights and really causing damage. So I called my youngest brother, and we went out to to the property and he said to me when I get there I should just speak to the to the guy that looks after the place his herdsman and chat to him and he'll tell me they've hunted those Aina there before and he knows what the story is I must just go and meet up with him so we went there 5 o'clock the afternoon um, I took my 9.3 by 62 and uh, my brother took my, my dad's 375 H&H and uh, got there and I was chatting to this guy and I said to him so you know where have they been catching cattle and how did they get in the previous time? And they've got a bit of a hunting lodge on the property as well. It's uh, often a combination of cattle and, and, and game farms in South Africa. So he said, no, well, last time they just sat on the lodge's deck and they put the Fox Pro um, on the deck and they shot over the railings on the side and that's how they got them. So uh, my brother and myself looked at each other and just laughed at You know, they say when it sounds too good to be true, it normally is. So, um, we are looking around and he explained to us where they live. They live up on the hillside. They've got a den uh, in one of the mountains there. And it's a very dense uh, vegetation and you need space to see when you try and call these things in. So we found a spot that was open probably about 300 meters from the lodge. So not far away, but not quite on the deck. And um, we sat out just after dark, put the caller on the Land Cruiser's roof switched it on and halfway through the first call they already started answering we could hear them coming in you hear them from miles away and um, you could hear them answering coming in and eventually I could hear that that, that there was one that was really close um, when they're really close even the, the Fox Pro at full volume doesn't sound very loud and um, I picked up my nine, 9.3 by 62 and I was looking through the scope it was full moon and in the full moon I could make make them standing out uh, make them make out standing next to a bush I could see the see him looking at us on the back of the vehicle. And as I looked at him through the scope, he turned straight on so I could make out head, chest, and everything. And I planted one in the center of his chest. And uh, he, he took off. I jumped off the back with the, with the headlamp and, and the 93 and went around the bush that he disappeared into. And as I got around the bush, I found him stone dead. So the shot was perfect. And... Um, if you've ever been close to a, you know, you know how terrible they smell. They really stink. I mean, from getting inside carcasses and eating them and you know what Jack Russell's or dogs are like, they're always rolling and everything that smells bad. And I think hyenas are the same, but they just never get washed. So they <laughs> really smell terrible. And um, so we took them, chucked them on the back of the van and we were going to take pictures. So we went to the lodge so we could just wash our hands and stuff once we'd done setting them up and, 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 and so on. And as we nearly got them, 
like in the right position to take a picture. Another one helped, helped like right next to us. It sounded like it was probably like 30 meters away. And we grabbed the 375, grabbed the caller onto the deck where the guy told us to be calling them from in the first place, switched on the caller. Two calls later, they were standing in the open clearing about 30 meters off the deck. And then my brother shot one as well. So it was both of our first Tahinas, <laughs> and we shot them together. So quite an awesome, memorable story. Yeah, every every time I watch those, you know, like African plane, you know, documentaries and stuff, I'm always rooting for the lions and that, you know, because <laughs> every time a hyena comes in, they just they they're ugly, they make terrible noise. Like, definitely not one of my favourite yeah. animals, the old hyena. Put it that way. Quite a quite a misconception that obviously the local guys know, but not many. Not many foreign guys, overseas guys know this. The, the hyenas are often portrayed as the scavenger and trying to take um, food away from the lions and stuff, but it's actually it's actually quite a misconception. A hyena seemed to, or is known to hunt more effectively than, than lion, and often because the lion's bigger and stronger, they just wait for a hyena to catch something. And then the lions are actually the scavengers. They go in and chase the hyenas off and, uh, <laughs> and, and take the meals from them. So the poor hyenas had a bad rat for years. I don't think it'll ever yeah. change, but they're actually quite, they're very successful, aren't they? Yeah, I was going to say, maybe the old hyena's getting a bad rap. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> All right, Nico, it's been great having you on the show, man. Really good chat. I think we're up to, yeah, about an hour and 40 minutes, mate, talking all things hunting and shooting in South Africa uh, and the Zululand. So it was great having you on the show, mate. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we can catch up again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, I really enjoyed the, the call and really enjoyed the chat. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.